lot of marks on her back. Beautiful save. It's the way to dry land. Dry land is a myth! Dry land is not a myth! I've seen it! Kevin Costner, Waterworld. I don't know what all the best is about. I saw that movie six times. It rules! Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 107 and 108, which begin with the Mariner nursing his gunshot wound and end with the Mariner asking Helen if she really wants to see Dryland. We start off kind of boring with this clip because the Trimoran is sailing along for like five seconds. I want to jump into the book. Because in the clip, it starts off with Helen yelling at the Mariner, hey, you lied to us. But in the book, there's a little bit of lead up to this confrontation. Okay. And I want to get into it because I think it's just going to add more fuel to the fire (laughs) of today's episode. By the way, we're in chapter 19 of the novelization, and there are only 29 chapters. So in the book, we're pushing two thirds of the way through. (laughs) There's only going to be... 88 episodes to this season. So we are pretty far along there, but does it really feel like we're that far along? I don't know. My feelings are so mixed (laughs) on the pacing of this movie. Yeah, who knows where we are at this point. As I was saying, leaving the wheel lashed and closed hauled, as she'd seen him do many times, Helen moved across the netting deck of the trimaran, even as the ship itself moved swiftly along the water. Emotions stormed in her, ebbing fear from the smoker ambush a sickly relief at being out of harm's way, momentarily at least. But most of all, bubbling anger at the Mariner's betrayal. She felt sure her host had planned to sell her and Enola back at that hellish slaver trading post. The anger subsided somewhat when she realized he was unconscious, sagging over the side, blood trickling down the side of the hull from his speared shoulder. She hauled him up onto the deck, and he came quickly awake as if startled from a dream. Pain seized his face, and he blinked and got on his haunches and started working at tugging the spear out. Can I help? She asked, bending down. Get away, he snarled. That did it. (laughs) I do like that there was this catalyst where she is angry and ready to fight, but she knows it's not quite the time. And then there's a catalyst. There's a moment when she's like, well, screw this. We're going to fight. He had the opportunity to get a little bit of sympathy. Mm-hmm. For being injured. And it's the same situation here. He's sitting on the ground. He's dabbing at his wound. He has been shot. He is actively bleeding. And if you're watching the movie here from the Mariner's perspective, Helen seems a little unreasonable stomping up to him and being like, oh, you lied to us. You were going to sell us to slavers and all that. But what I love about the book is that you get to see that Helen's good nature is trying to win out, but when the Mariner is his regular salty self, <laughs> all sympathy gets thrown out the window because he doesn't deserve it. Right. Even good people have their limits. Mm-hmm. And the Mariner has been pushing Helen's limits for days now. <laughs> and I certainly wouldn't last that long. I'm certainly not as good natured as Helen is. So something that I like in the movie about this argument is that 
his response to her initial accusation was, we both lied. It bothers me what he does here. Okay, there are things that I don't like. There's plenty of things I don't like, and I'm sure we will get to them. What I like is he is preparing vaguely to fess up as well. But there's so much about that to not like. Anyways, but I like that he's not playing the victim here. (laughs) He is admitting that he also lied. I don't appreciate that when Helen approaches and says, you lied to us, you were going to sell us back there. So the issue on the table is that the Mariner deceived them and his actual plan was to sell them as slaves. Yes, which he never addresses. The Mariner completely sidesteps that accusation in order to cast aspersions from himself back onto Helen. He is pulling a schoolyard trick of I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. I'm not the one on trial. You're the one on trial because you didn't tell me about the tattoo and all that. It's very frustrating to me. It is. It bothers me that he never denies that accusation. If this was the first time that you saw this clip, if we had brought a guest in and the style of the guest was, I haven't seen the movie. I just watched these two minutes. It would look like he did do that, that he did bring them to this outpost to sell them as slaves because he never denies it. And based on the fight that they just had and what's happening here, that's entirely believable that he did bring them there. They're not fighting very clearly about their issues. Well, I was going to say Helen is because she does have a clear accusation, but she deviates from her own accusation. She allows him to drive the argument to a different place. And so he says, we both lied. All right. So now on the table, we have two issues. All right. Well, it's okay to have two issues in a fight, but you have to still be clear about what the two issues are. He's not exactly clear about what he lied about, and she's not clear about what she lied about. And neither of them are clear anymore about what they're accusing the other one of. The whole thing's a mess. I would have had so much more respect for the Mariner if in response to Helen bringing up the selling issue, he had just said, yeah, I was going to sell you because I need you off my boat because you two are trouble. And then case in point, look at what the smokers did just to get their hands on Enola. And then use that as a springboard into the issue of, you lied to me about the importance of the tattoo. I would have had more respect for him because then he wouldn't be dancing around this issue and refusing to fess up to it. Because I can understand, from his perspective, getting rid of Helen and Enola, making them someone else's problem. I'm not saying it's a good thing to do, because that's not what good people do, but I understand it. Right. Okay, I'm not sure we've ever asked this question. Do you think he was bringing them there to sell them? Oh, absolutely. Really? I think he was going to drop them off. Really? Okay, it honestly hadn't occurred to me. I just assumed that this whole thing was a coincidence. I have to like completely reframe my brain. It adds a sinister undertone to him teaching Enola how to swim, because if you are going to sell a child on a water world... If that child knows how to swim, you may be able to fetch a higher price for said child. Yeah, if a child can't swim, that child is nothing but a liability. Mm -hmm. So I'm reframing the argument in my head based on this new information that I totally agree with, that he was indeed going there to sell them. That when she accuses him, he doesn't rebut it because 
it's true. My mind's a little blown and I'm a little embarrassed. I don't know that I assumed the best in him. You wanted to see good in him. Right. Which is crazy because I have never wanted to see the best in him. I've hated him this whole time. He's a garbage human being and, and he's incredibly abusive to the two of them. So why stop now? Why wouldn't he continue to be abusive? We keep, and again, sell them. We keep forgetting that he's not human. He is a mutant. Yeah, that statement really bothers me. Helen's got some low blows here. Oh, absolutely. In this argument. And they're like unreasonably low. They feel wrong. It bothers me that she's a good person and a selfless person. And she still says these things to him. But you know what? She's been through a lot. She's been physically beaten by him. Mm -hmm. She's been emotionally and verbally abused by him. She was sexually sold by him. And now nearly sold into slavery by him. So why on earth would she not be nasty now? She has every reason to be. I want to duck back into the book because the exchange that they have here in the movie is very close to what they have here in the book with the added element of him having a spear wound as opposed to a gunshot wound. She stood hovering over him, not caring how much pain the bastard was in. You lied to us, she said. You were going to sell us back there. We both lied, he grunted, working at the spear. What? He stopped his efforts with the spear to look at her dead on. You said the markings on the child's back didn't mean anything. You lied. I... I don't know what they mean. He gritted his teeth, tugging at the spear. Then, breathing hard, eyes closed, he said, Those smokers are after the girl. That's what that ambush was all about. You're crazy! I saw what I saw. He jerked a thumb at the speared shoulder. I got this from a smoker who lost his life trying to grab her. The child, hearing this fuss, began moving tentatively toward them, across the netting deck. Her face tightened with concern as she neared the wounded mariner. You're hurt, she said. Save your sympathy, Enola, Helen said crisply. He was going to sell us. And she reached out and snatched the crayon the girl was clutching and tossed the draw stick in the mariner's face. He didn't flinch as it bounced off his cheek onto the hull. I really like how that's written. Their arguments against each other are much more clear. And the book has something that the movie does not have. It has that clear indication that a smoker was specifically trying to grab Enola. That didn't happen in the movie. So why now does he realize that the tattoos on Enola's back are something important that he was lied to about? This isn't the first attack on the boat. This is the third attack that they have endured together. First the atoll, and then the plane. And now here at the trading outpost. So why now does he think that there's something more going on? If you're only going off the movie, the Mariner has never received confirmation that the smokers were specifically after the girl. Right. Once the Trimaran got away from the atoll, the first encounter with the smokers they had was the airplane. And from the Mariner's perspective, he could have just interpreted that as, oh, they're after us because we escaped the atoll. That's very true. There was conversation by the pilot. Ah, there's the girl. That's who we're after. But there's no way that the Mariner would have heard that. Right. And the next time they run up against smokers is this trading post in which they are trying to ensnare the Trimaran. There's been no indication at all to the Mariner that the smokers are specifically after her from all the optics of the situations, it just seems like they are hunting the boat. Right. So the Mariner alone on that boat, that's the status quo. Mm -hmm. That status quo has been disrupted. 
So what in the status quo is worth hunting? Well, Anola's tattoos are the odd thing out. But that's not the only odd thing out here. The status quo is also the odd thing out. The people on the atoll knew that he was a mutant. Any survivors could have told the smokers about him. In fact, they did. They know that he's a mutant. Mm -hmm. And they're not after him because of that, but they could be. So the thing that drew the Mariner and Enola together, this unique weirdness about them that makes them outcasts, it also makes them huntable. Mm -hmm. So the Mariner, I think, is projecting onto Enola what could be his own fault. He's likely thinking, well, the smokers have never hunted me before. What's different? A girl with a tattoo. That must be it. That's what I'm going with. I think that is in part looking to blame these two. Mm -hmm. Looking to justify his desire to sell them. Yeah. Because he was just the night before bonding with them. So maybe he had started to feel guilty about the course that he set a day or two ago. So maybe he was starting to feel a little bit guilty about that. And now that the whole thing blew up in his face, he needs to assuage his own guilt and blame the weird thing in the situation, which is Anola's tattoos. And he just happens to be right. Mm-hmm. Seriously, it was a 50-50 chance. Either they were after him because he's a fish man, or he's after Anola and her tattoo. And he happened to get it right. And that's infuriating. Because I... he was going to sell them. I love how Helen grabs the crayon from Enola and tosses it back at the Mariner because that was just given a few episodes ago. Yeah. And now she's throwing it back because he betrayed them. Right. They don't want his gifts anymore. Nope. You don't get to be nice to somebody one day and then sell them into slavery the next day. It doesn't work like that. And Helen straight up says, no wonder you let her keep it, meaning the crayon. Yep. More switching guilt because mm-hmm. he knew he knew what was going to happen like, hey i'm going to sell you into slavery so here's a crayon to keep you happy until then right i find it so funny that anola makes to go after the crayon and helen specifically tells her to leave it i really liked that moment there's something about when someone is flipping out and they tell you to do something just do it not doing it is only going to magnify the flipping out If they tell you to do something, just do it, especially if you're their child. So I like that little moment. The argument quickly turns. It's no longer about slavery versus Enola's tattoo. It becomes all about dry land. And the Mariner, he never admits that he lied. He just makes it super duper clear that she was wrong. I'm not sure gaslighting is really the proper term for it, but it's in that vein. Yeah. Where he doesn't admit he's wrong, he makes her feel like she was wrong for believing him. Yeah, that sounds pretty gaslighty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, maybe we should watch that movie for a hiatus episode. Is there a movie called Gaslighting? Yeah, that's where the term comes from. Oh, Oh, we're watching it now. We are watching Gaslighting. Okay, ducking back into the book to rejoin this argument. Why do they want her, he said. What do the markings mean? Helen refused to dignify his questions with answers. Instead, she looked down at him scathingly and said, There's nothing human about you. They should have killed you the day you were born. They tried, he said. And with one swift motion, in a burst of blood, he yanked the spear from his shoulder, turning his face into a mask of agony that immediately fused into fury as he stood, 
filling his hand with a machete lying unsecured on the deck. Blood streaming from the wounded shoulder, his good hand filled with the big menacing blade, he pointed it threateningly at her, its point damn near touching her nose. Now, what are the marks on the child's back? She didn't believe he'd use it, but she didn't exactly believe he wouldn't either. Then she heard herself say, People... people think it charts the way to dry land. He slumped, the machete lowering. Dry land. Dry land's a myth. So that's super violent in a very different way than the movie is super violent. It's kind of badass, though. Uh, yeah. There's just something about him hearing Helen say they should have killed you as a baby and then him tearing the spear out of his shoulder and replying with, they tried. Here in the movie, him sitting down, tending to his wound, it's so passive. Whereas in the book, tearing a foreign body out of his shoulder and then pulling out his machine. Like, it's very machismo, very intimidating. It is, in a way where he doesn't actually need to touch her to get his point across. And I really like her line of thinking that she didn't think he'd use it, but she wasn't sure he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Like, she wasn't really sure whether or not he would use that machete on her. As opposed to the movie, which is very chaotic and quick and physical. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of grabbing, a lot of shoving, a lot of pushing, and a lot of pain that we can't see. She's being backed over something that has got to hurt. And then when he goes to release her, you see this in movies sometimes, when someone who's got a hold of someone else goes to release them, but like one last hard shake before they do. Mm -hmm. He does that. And you know that has to hurt. The difference between holding someone at a distance with a machete versus getting right up in their face, it's a very different feeling as far as framing and blocking is concerned. I think I like the movie better with him getting right up in her face, really staring each other down, because Helen doesn't emotionally break. She stays very stern this whole time, and that's commendable in her situation because he is bending her back over whatever he's pushed her up against. I think it's a control board. There's like some levers and stuff that were certainly hurting her. Yeah. yeah. It's very chaotic. And in a situation like this where you were very nearly sold and then attacked and very nearly died, chaos is not what these people need right now. They need <laughs> calm. They need to reorient themselves and to gather a plan for what happens next. But the chaos isn't over. We're right back at it. Just the body chemicals going on, the adrenaline. But all of those chemicals in the body have not had a chance to calm down and reset and take care of things before they're right back at it. Yeah, this isn't a situation where you can have a nice measured conversation or anything like that. No. When Helen says that the tattoo leads the way to dry land and the mariner says dry land's a myth, Helen refuses to believe that. And they start trading back these little philosophical jabs where Helen points out that the Mariner himself said that he knows where it is. And the Mariner says that she is a fool to believe in something she's never seen before. That's really interesting coming from somebody who has seen way more of the world at large than anybody else. So I suppose that makes him a reliable source because he's right. He has sailed further 
than anybody else. Helen reveals that the dirt in Enola's basket was richer and darker than anything she's seen before. And she asks how he can be so sure that Dryland doesn't exist. And as you mentioned, he has sailed farther. But the way he words it in the movie is he says, I've sailed farther than most have dreamed, and I've never seen it. And all I can think of is that one conversation we had with a previous guest when we were talking about, well, what if Waterworld is the same world as Mad Max and half of the world has all of the water and half of the world is all desert? Oh, yeah, I remember that. He just can't reach dry land because he's sailing in a circle. I don't like the statement, I've sailed further than most can dream, because we've met a lot of people in this world who literally dream of dry land. Well, then he hasn't sailed far enough. Because he hasn't found Dryland. And we as viewers know it's out there because we've seen the movie before. So that statement is categorically untrue. I just looked up on the internet how long it takes to circumnavigate the globe. Apparently. 180 days, right? The world record for sailing around the world is 40 days on a trimaran. On average, most people that take the time to do some sightseeing need about three and a half years. Oh, wow. So the average for sailing around the globe having to go around the continents. Right. You're looking at three to five years. If you've been sailing all your life like the Mariner has, it's possible that he could have circumnavigated the globe multiple times, depending on his heading. Absolutely. I don't doubt that he has circumnavigated the globe, but that's the problem with globes. Like, there's so much area that isn't Mount Everest. Mm Mm-hmm. So if he had a mapping system where he could track using the stars and the sun and the moon and whatnot, if he could record where he's been and where he hasn't been, well, he would know he hadn't been like, oh, look, there's this splotch in the middle here that I've never been to. I'm going to go there. Yeah. I don't think he keeps track of where he's been, which seems weird because, I mean, that's how we got maps in the first place is because people sailed places And recorded what they saw and what was in the sky when they saw it. That's how we started. So we can totally start again on that. Mm -hmm. And he's got plenty of paper and writing utensils. Yeah, he's got plenty of weird things on his boat, which is another one of the points that Helen makes. That the things on his boat are things that nobody has seen before. And she raises her hand to gesture at the shells that are hanging from his ears to say, what about those shells and the reflecting glass and the music box? And it gave me pause because I realized most shells are found on the ocean floor because you don't see a lot of mollusks swimming around on the surface. It occurred to me, how do they know what shells are at all? Unless they found them inside fish that they fished up from the bottom. That's true. But then again, why would they call them shells? Maybe it's just something they passed down language-wise. It must be. I'm surprised it hasn't changed in some way, that it still remains the same word that means the same thing. I'm very curious about how they know a lot of words. I think we've talked about glass before. Like, How on earth is there any glass left unbroken? Mm -hmm. But she knows what reflecting glass is. So she knows what reflection is. So she knows what a mirror is. Although she doesn't call it a mirror. She called it a reflecting glass. Yeah. So it does sound like the word mirror is lost, which makes sense, because how would they still have mirrors? Diving back into the book, the Mariner has just said that Dryland is a myth. 
And Helen responds by saying, it's not. You said so yourself. You said you knew where it was. You said you were taking us there. And the Mariner responds with, I'm a liar, remember? Then he fell to his knees and the machete clattered from his hand into the hall and he flopped face down, passing out from the pain. I like that because I brought that up last week that, yeah, he gets shot through the abdomen and yeah, it misses like big organs and stuff, but the physicality of these two minutes just doesn't really match that he just got shot. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate that. I also like it as an ending to an argument. It feels like slightly humorous in a dangerous way. Interestingly enough, that's not the end of the argument. Oh, okay. It is a intermission of sorts. Ah, okay, okay, okay. I like that too, because just because you're wounded doesn't mean you don't have to answer for your big fat lie. Mm. The book continues. When he came to, the pain had subsided somewhat, now more a dull throbbing. His shoulder was bandaged, and he was leaning against the mast, sitting up. Kneeling next to him, the woman offered him his water jug, and he took it and gulped a drink. Why didn't you kill me, he asked. You could have. I need you alive, she said. I can't captain this boat. You've learned a lot, quickly, he granted her grudgingly, nodding about the boat. But you're a fool, believing in something you've never seen. Her eyes glittered and her smile was childlike. But I have seen it. You've seen dry land? I've touched it. The fingers of one hand clutched at the air and turned into a trembling fist. In these hands I've held and touched and savored dirt far richer and darker than what you traded back at the atoll. He sat up straighter, interested in spite of himself. Where? She was smiling a little, ready to share her secret. It was in the basket, she said. Basket? The basket we found Enola in. So that was the ground her hope was built on. Poor woman. Poor deluded woman. There is no dry land, he said softly, almost gently. But he clipped off each word. It doesn't exist. She was shaking her head, not wanting to hear this. How can you be so sure? He nodded to the sea because I've sailed farther than most have dreamed, and I've never seen it. Still shaking her head, her eyes desperately trying to hold on to hope, she said, But the things on this boat, what things? Her voice charted the struggle between hope and despair she was waging inside. These, these things no one in Waterworld has ever seen. Shells in your hair, reflecting glass? If not Dryland, where did they come from? So you want to see Dryland, he said. He laughed, but there was no humor in it. You really want to see it? Her eyes were almost crazed. Of course. What do you think? Then I'll show it to you. It's interesting that they cover the same ground, but it feels like in the book it takes so much longer. In a good way, though. I like that conversation. I like that there is a chance in the book for them to calm down, because the way it is here in the movie, tensions are running really high, and the Mariner offering to bring Helen to his definition of dry land is a sort of maybe concession at the end of this argument. Not so much them arriving at a common decision or offering her something based on a response to how deeply she believes in something. In the movie, this is him, fine, I'm going to show you just how wrong you are. As opposed to in the book, it reads a bit more like, I need to reveal the truth to you. I definitely agree. Like you said, I like that there is a break in the argument. Helen gets to prove once again that she's a good person because she takes care of him. He's right. She could have killed him. So I like that she has that opportunity. I like that they have the rest of this fight, not as a fight. It's not heated. It's calm. And they have a conversation which shows a certain amount of sympathy and gentility on his part. 
that he realizes that he's destroying her worldview. Where in the movie, he hates her worldview and is enjoying destroying it. Yeah. Oof. Helen's going to have a pretty rough realization in the coming few weeks. I am looking forward to it because we have been hoping and watching and character growth for the Mariner. I feel like he has been the central character up till now. And it's time for Helen to learn and to change for the next little while. Yeah. And I'm glad to change that focus. Let's put a pin in things for now. Come back next time. We'll see the Mariner get out his diving bell. Enola will get left behind. And Helen will be transported into the dark depths of Waterworld. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 54. We'll see you next time.